Sometimes you don't have to travel very far at all to learn about the world. You can write a very good history of the world by just looking at the things in your house. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Writer Bill Bryson headlines today's very English edition of Travel with Rick Steves with a tour of the Victorian era house he calls home. And screenwriter Andrew Davis helps us observe the bicentennial of Jane Austen's first book. She writes about things that never go out of fashion love and sex and money, conflict between the generations. So um, I've always been a terrific Jane Austen fan. Also, Britt Lonsdale instructs us on the proper way to enjoy a graceful afternoon tea service in London. And then, of course, you've got to leave some room for pastries and cakes which will follow. So it's not something that's to be hurried. There's an elegant aspect to it. It's English as can be in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. 200 years after she published her very first novel, Sense and Sensibility, Jane Austen is actually as popular as ever. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, screenwriter Andrew Davis explains why he's such a big fan of her work and tells us where you can experience a slice of Jane Austen's England. We'll also take time for an elegant afternoon tea as Britt Lonsdale gently walks us through what you can expect and what's expected of you at a stylish London tea room. Let's start At Home with writer Bill Bryson. In his most recent book, At Home, A Short History of Private Life, Bryson discovers room by room what his 1851 parsonage in small-town England can teach us about the comforts of home we take for granted today. Bill, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So let's get right to that question. Room and board. I mean, it's room is obvious. What's board all about? Well, I'd always wondered that myself. And well, it turns out that in medieval times, particularly in humble dwellings, the the dining table was not a table itself, but it was just a board that hung on the wall. Ah. Uh, and at mealtimes, the family would get it down, and people, members of the household would sit around, and they would balance the board on their knees and eat off that. And over time, the term board came to signify not just the dining surface, but the meal itself. And that's where we get the term room and board. Uh, that's that's where the board comes from. That's where boarders come from and boarding house and, and all those other terms. And even the expression above board indicates somebody, an honest person whose hands are visible at all times above board. You can learn so much by looking at houses in, in your travels. I've picked up a, a notion that they would prepare a meal on a board in the old castles and manor houses and so on, and then walk the prepared meal into the dining room and set it down in front of the diners. Is that is that what you learned? Certainly board was originally a, a much more basic sort of thing. Almost all household furniture was extremely basic. If you just look at a word like cupboard, I mean, the word cupboard is obviously cupboard. And we think of cupboard as a kind of cabinet that ah. probably has a, a lot of, you know, very nice carpentry involved in it. But originally, a cupboard was, was really just a board on which cups were stood. It was a very simple piece of furnishings. And even originally, well, sort of the fundamental of furniture is mobility, right? The French word for furniture is, if I understand correctly, mobile. Yes, and same with Italian and I think Spanish as well. The Romance languages were based on mobile, mobility, because in early days it was uh, wealthier households. The people of the sort of dominant class uh, tend to have large households and they moved around a lot. And so somebody might have you know lots and lots of land all over the place or be off in various different kinds of campaigns. And so such furniture as they had, they wanted it to be mobile and to be able to move it around. And the whole idea of having the kind of fixed and elegant furniture that we think of now was really a much later manifestation. Well, that's related to the concept of room fit for a king, I believe. And uh, to be an effective king in the Middle Ages, you had to be on the road almost all the time. And noble people would have a room fit for a king, and the king would be more likely to stay with them when they were in that town. That's absolutely the case. But through much of the Middle Ages, even the very top of the social heap, um, in terms of what they had, tended to be very basic. I mean, something like, as simple as a chair. A chair is a, is a fairly modern device. Um, and again, until about the time of the 14th century, a, a chair was a privileged thing to sit on, which is why we still have, you know, chairman of the board and oh, yeah. someone who runs a meeting chairs it. The person who was running the meeting, the most important person in the room, was the one person who got the chair. You write in your book that uh, houses are not a refuge of history. It's, it's where history ends up. And this is a good example of that, isn't it? Well, when we study history in school, the way we're normally taught history, it's all about grand things happening on the world stage. It's about wars and big political events and, and all of that kind of thing. 
But in fact, most of what motivates people in the wider world is to get things at home. So whatever happens in history, whatever is discovered or fought over, or whatever foods are found or spices are found or new materials, fabrics and so on are found and discovered, they're brought back to one's country and they end up in the home. And so you can write a very good history of the world by just looking at the things in your house. And if you look at things like furniture or fabrics or foods, you can actually write a history of the world, a very good history of the world from that perspective. But those are the things that tend not to be feature very much in normal conventional history books. In that regard, let's talk about the, the bathroom. What does that teach us about hygiene? Your house is 1851. You're living in it a century and a half later. Well, the one thing you would have noticed in 1851 was the concept of modern hygiene was really just getting going then. This was about the time that the flushing toilet was invented, or at least the first modern practical flushing toilet was invented. Before that, of course, people had to go uh, into privies outdoors or, you know, into chamber pots and that kind of thing. So did the vicar, did the vicar in your house in 1851, did he have a sit-down flush toilet inside or did he go outside? Well, it's not quite possible to tell what he had exactly. We do have the original blueprint of the house, and on the staircase, on the landing, halfway between the downstairs and upstairs, the original blueprints show a little room that's marked as uh, WC water closet, which would indicate that that was a room where he was the person in the house was expected to go to do his private business, so to speak. But whether that incorporated a flushing toilet or not isn't possible to say. And in any case, that room seems not to have been built at that time. The rooms that we have as bathrooms in the house now, one of them originally was a dressing room and another one was a, was a bedroom. So we have like a, a very big bathroom, which was often the case with, with 19th century homes in Britain, because it was uh, it's too big to be a bathroom because originally it was actually a bedroom. We're talking about your book at home, A Short History of Private Life, but that reminds me of uh, Neither Here Nor There when you talked about your backpacking trip in the 70s. I remember back in the 70s, cheap hotels in Paris had a landing halfway up the stairs, and that was where the toilet was. Well, it's, I guess. I mean, I, I'm not an architect, but uh, there must have been some practical consideration there. Very often, the thing you have to bear in mind is that because houses are older than the bathrooms within them, very, very often, when the bathrooms came along, when people started wanting this little space for privacy, they had to put them wherever they could kind of fit them in. That could be retrofitted. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Bill Bryson, and Bill's new book is At Home, A Short History of Private Life. Bill, I was fascinated by how the arrangement of chairs would change over time and how that changed social interaction. I mean, one of the things that would surprise you if you went to, let's say, uh, Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's house, or any other house of that period, if you went there at the time that he was alive, you'd find that by day, almost all the furniture in the living rooms was pushed back against the wall and that the middle of the room was empty, rather like a waiting room. And the reason for that was because... The rooms were very dark. When you were crossing these rooms with a single candle, you'd negotiate your way around a lot of furniture because you would be constantly cracking your shins and, <laughs> and falling over. Uh, houses were very, very dark at night, and so it, the safe way of making them safe was, was to try and get the furniture as much out of the way as possible. And the, the relic we have of that is that lots and lots of the furniture we have even now is meant to be pushed up against the wall and... Uh, on a chest of drawers. The back of a chest of drawers or the back of a wardrobe is going to be very basic. It's not normally finished hmm. in good wood. It was the same in Jefferson's day. The back of chairs would have been very basic. It wouldn't have been finished in the good cloth that was visible on the front of the chairs because most of the time you weren't going to be seeing it. You know, I've always thought English have strange taste in carpets, at least from going to cheap B&Bs over the decades. What kind of floor coverings did they have back in the middle of the 19th century? It depends very much on what class you come from. If you could afford it, you had, you know, very fine Axminster wool carpets. But a lot of people couldn't afford that. And particularly in, in America, you had not only the problem that there wasn't anything produced locally, but it cost a lot of money to import these things. And so people like Washington and Jefferson and other people of that class, they often had to have much more basic coverings on their floors simply because they couldn't afford to import everything. There's a real shortage of materials right throughout the whole of the colonial period in America. It would be too much to say that frustrations over consumer goods was what led to the American Revolution, but it was actually part of the overall frustration with Britain. It was not just a political frustration, but it was a, it was a frustration of the fact that we weren't allowed to have things as cheaply and as readily as people back in Britain were. It's that quest for a comfortable life that you learn when you study your home. I'm Rick Steves. Yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Bill Bryson, his book, At Home, A Short History of Private Life. Bill, in your study, you must have gotten kind of close to the vicar, Thomas Marsham, right? He designed the place, actually? He used an architect, so uh, he didn't design it. But 
Probably. I mean, as with most people who build their own homes, I'm sure he had a, a lot of input into how things went. And what's interesting in our house was that we have the original blueprints, and they show more or less the house as we've got it now, but there were a lot of very significant things changed between the houses designed and the houses built. So presumably the Reverend Marsham was actively engaged in making adjustments as the building went up. Now, as you toured your own home, you must have had a few moments where you were frustrated by not understanding this or that. If you could have uh, Vicar Marsham right now and take him to a corner of your house, what, what, would, what would you ask him? Well, the one thing that's the very strangest thing in the whole house is that was kind of my starting point for the book was that I went up in the attic of the house, and in most British homes, the attic is really quite inaccessible. It's not like a space that you would normally go up to. And I had to go up there to, to look for the source of a leak not long after we moved into the house. I went up there and discovered there was a door in the wall that went out onto a space, on the roof space, a kind of very small flat area on the roof space. But it was a very good door. I mean, it was a proper door that leads out onto a, a effectively useless small space on the roof. And I would love to know what they were thinking when they built this door in the wall to go into the outside of the house in a part of the house that nobody would ever normally get to. Now, when I read that, I just thought that's where the man of the house would go to survey his domain. Don't you think that Well, would it's, be it? it's a very effective way of surveying the domain, but in order to get up there, uh, you really, right. yeah, you really have to do some kind of gymnastics. <laughs> Because there's no, there's no ladder or steps or anything that takes you up into the attic. You have to get out a very big step ladder. I mean, these ceilings in 19th century house are high. So you have to get out a really big step ladder and go, you know, go right to the top of it and haul yourself through a hatch in the ceiling and then sort of clamber your way through an attic and and go out this door. So by the time you get out there to survey your estate, you're going to be covered in cobwebs and pretty breathless. You're not much of a gentleman at that point. You know, when we write travel books, I think our hope is that people will, um, enrich their lives by experiencing things, you know, from other cultures. Is there one aspect of your study of your mid-19th century English stately home that helps you enjoy your home more today and that we might all benefit from to enjoy our lives today from what you learned back in the days of Vicar Marsham? Well, I think that probably the, the basic thing, the most fundamental thing is just how comfortable we are, how lucky we are. Just think of something like music. In his day, if he loved Beethoven, he would probably, in his whole life, he'd probably only be able to hear a particular Beethoven concerto once or twice or, you know, a couple of times in his whole life. We can get a CD or some other kind of recorded music and listen to it over and over again. And you can multiply that through every aspect of your life. We have comfort and luxury beyond the imagining of people only a couple of generations ago. And yet we take it all for granted. We really ought to stop from time to time and just reflect about the fact how lucky we are to be alive now. It's a beautiful thought. Bill Bryson's latest book is At Home, A Short History of Private Life. Bill, thanks for joining us, and best wishes with your your travels and your writing and and this great book. Thank you very much, Rick. It's been my pleasure. Next, we're off to London for a proper English afternoon tea. And then we get better acquainted with the world of Jane Austen. By phone, we're at 877-333-RICK. Email is radio at ricksteves.com. It's Travel with Rick Steves. One of the fun things about travel is getting acquainted with a country's culture and even its little rivalries. Scottish tour guide Anne Doig lets us in on an old saying that does reinforce some of the stereotypes inside the British Isles, but it does it with a gentle sense of humor. This little poem illustrates our humor, I guess, but it starts with, first you have the Welsh, 
who prey on their knees and on their neighbours. Then you have the Irish, who don't know what they want, but they'll fight you for it anyway. Then you have the Scots, who keep the Sabbath and everything else they can get their hands on. And then you have the English, who are a self-made race, which absolves Almighty God of a great deal of responsibility. <laughs> It's so important in our travels that we become kind of a cultural chameleon. And maybe maybe you don't drink a lot of tea, but boy, when you're in England, it makes a lot of sense to have a spot of tea. A spot of tea feels just right for me when I'm in England, even though I don't think about it much on this side of the Atlantic. We're going to learn today about the formal teas of England, and we're joined by a blue badge guide from London, Britt Lonsdale. Britt, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Now, Britt, you've spent years taking Americans around London as a tour guide. I find people are very interested in these teas. What can we learn about teas to understand that part of English culture? Afternoon tea for English people is just such an automatic ritual that uh, we never really think too much about it. We think that afternoon tea really started. One of the people given credit for it is the Duchess Anna Maria, who was the seventh Duke of Bedford's wife, and she found the distance between lunch and between dinner a little too far and so she got little sandwiches cake and a pot of tea served to her and it's thought that she was the person who really started it off although various other claimants uh, are there if you read about it but it's just a wonderful little ceremony and it's evolved over the years and it's become something that uh, you just tend to enjoy to make a bit of a fuss of yourself over. You know, it's nice to treat yourself to an afternoon tea and it's so delicious. But I do warn you that it bypasses the alimentary canal and settles <laughs> immediately on your hips and thighs. <laughs> you could call this Victorian then, couldn't you? Is it 19th century? Yes, I think. I mean, tea, of course, has been a rage for, for much longer than that, really. But uh, it's thought that the real afternoon tea as we know it today probably evolved during that time. And originally it would be for people with a lot of time on their hands as opposed to the working class? or Well, or... I would imagine so, although I think lots of people did like to try and, you know, say that they took tea, certainly. But nowadays I think everybody really enjoys a good afternoon tea. But it's still not for people on a limited budget because if you go for a really posh afternoon tea at somewhere like the Langham Hotel or the Ritz or the Landmark or Fortnum and Mason's, you're going to have not much change left from about 40 pounds. That's a lot of money. 40 pounds. So that would be how many dollars? Gosh, what, $70. $60, $60, so, yeah. $70. Yes, at today's rates. I know. Last time I was in London, I learned that you can split a tea. Is that is that actually kosher if two people want to order a $60 tea? Split it? Well, you and I did at the Wolseley, I seem to remember, and we were treated very nicely there and allowed to do that. Yeah. Um, if you were to go to somewhere like the, you know, the Ritz or the Langham. That would be um, frowned on Fortnum, there, I suppose. Uh, well, I'm not sure. I think you could probably get round it. I mean, probably you could what probably you could order do. a cup of tea, one person, and the and the whole thing. I should together. imagine you could because it's yeah. very very filling, and you get an awful lot of food. So, oh yeah, um, filled us both up. <laughs> it certainly did. That's so lovely. Hey, Britt, uh, there's a little confusion among uh, travelers between the terminology. You hear about cream tea, afternoon tea, high tea. What are the differences there? Well. A cream tea and afternoon tea tend to be a fairly similar sort of thing, really, in my view. High tea tends to be something sort of like an early tea that you would give um, children, perhaps when they came in from school, something with a little more substance to it, where you might have something called Welsh rarebit, or you might have, yeah. um, you know, that wonderful thing that we serve beans on toast with it, or something like that. It's the sort of thing that I would give to my children if they came in and were oh, starving okay. and couldn't wait for dinner. So a high tea is more of a meal, then? Yes, a lot of uh, visitors refer to afternoon tea as high tea, and I guess we don't really correct them anymore, not that we really mind. <laughs> okay, but that's very good to know, because I think what we're thinking about is the afternoon tea, and that's with all the ritual, and that's where you'd go to the fancy tea room in a, in a fancy hotel or something like this. It is, really, and the sort of thing that you'll be served, you'll be served little sandwiches, very dainty sandwiches with the crust cut off the bread, um, the cucumber sandwiches, sometimes smoked salmon. You will have egg and cress sandwiches, and then you'll have scones. There's great debate about whether you pronounce it scone or scone. The majority of people pronounce it scone, but quite a number pronounce it scone. It, it varies, but this is like a little cake, often with currants in or sultanas or raisins. It depends. They're served in very different ways, but generally that's how they are. And you cut them in half and put 
strawberry jam on either side and mm. then a great big spoonful of clotted cream. Clotted cream is about, oh, I think it's probably a minimum of 55% fat, which uh, to you in the US would probably qualify as butter. Uh, it's very, very rich, and it's quite delicious. You're just getting me all excited here, Britt. Oh, really? <laughs> yes, I, I got to admit. Now, when I like, what I like to do is those beautiful scones or scones, I slice them very thinly so that I can have almost like a loaf of bread, and then I can put the clotted cream and the, and the jam on each little thin layer. Is that kosher? <laughs> well, um, you know, it depends. I think you can do pretty much what you want. But um, the way I tend to do it is cut them in half and then put the strawberry jam and then a dollop of cream on the middle. And I okay. keep two halves separate um, and eat them just like that. You sort of eat them in one half. And then, of course, you've got to leave some room for pastries and cakes which will follow. So it's not something that's to be hurried. There's an elegant aspect to it, and you're expected to take your time over it. If I went for afternoon tea at three o'clock, I certainly wouldn't expect to leave much before about five or five thirty, and I probably wouldn't eat much that evening either. I bet not. So help us envision this. You get this uh, three-tiered silver tray, don't you? You do. Very often it's presented like that. Take us through that from the bottom to the top. Well, from the bottom, very often you will have the sandwiches, and they'll be finger sandwiches. So if you imagine a slice of bread cut into probably about six segments, sometimes they'll be in triangles. Without the crust? Oh, without the crust, yes, the crust. Uh, I remember reading somewhere um, somebody saying, uh, yes, if you didn't slice off the crust, what on earth would you give to the poor? Which I thought was very snobby. But you cut them and you make them as delicate and dainty as possible. And then on the next tier up, you've got scones. And then on the final tier, you've got very tiny little cakes. Oh, this sounds so good. I'm speaking with Britt Lonsdale, and Britt is a blue badge guide. She's helped me for years in London as I work on my guidebook there. And we'll have Britt's contact information on our website at the radio corner at ricksteves.com. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Cheryl's on the phone in Portland, Oregon. Cheryl, thanks for your call. Hi, how are you? Great. Um, I was calling with a comment for afternoon tea, a place I wanted to recommend, which is the Dorchester Hotel. I've been there twice for afternoon tea and really enjoyed it. Great food, great ambiance, and a very relaxing atmosphere. The Dorchester? Mm-hmm. Absolutely lovely, and I would agree completely. It's a marvelous hotel, and it does a very good afternoon tea. Sure. When you were having the tea, did you have the uh, the three-tiered silver setting? Yeah. Well, actually, they brought the platter sandwiches, which you could select from, um, and that was my downfall. <laughs> Ate too many of those, but then later on, they brought the three-tiered with the scones and a couple of other items with the clotted cream and the jam, and then later, they brought the platter of desserts, which you could select from. <laughs> uh-huh. So, yeah, it was You do do food. that sometimes. <laughs> now, Cheryl, were you surrounded by what seemed like, you know, uppity, uh, aristocratic English people, or was it something that a tourist could feel comfortable in? Um, I would definitely say a tourist could feel comfortable in it. They do have a dress code, but if you have slacks and a nice shirt or, you know, a nice coat or something like that, you would definitely fit right in. And I never felt at all uncomfortable or that it was stuffy. The the staff at the hotel, they were great. It just made the whole experience great. Now, one thing I learned when I was having my tea is that the actual selection of tea is important, too. Britt, what can you tell us about the variety of teas you might be able to choose from? Well, there's a huge variety, but the most important thing to remember, I think, is that we always have it with milk. Sometimes I've noticed when I've gone with groups of people or, or individuals, they don't expect to have milk in their tea, but most of us will have milk automatically, and I know that you don't. Um, the sort of teas that will be served for afternoon tea will be things like Darjeeling. A lot of us, me particularly, like a tea called Earl Grey. Apparently the Queen's very fond of Lapsang Souchong. But you can have anything, really, for afternoon tea. And you certainly won't have, um, you know, fruit teas or anything like that. It'll always be Indian or uh, China tea. That sort of thing will be served. And I think something like Darjeeling is usually a light sort of pleasant tea. Often places do their own afternoon tea blends, things that they feel are suitable. Certainly at the end of it, you'll have drunk so much that you will almost undoubtedly have a massive caffeine and sugar rush. <laughs> So, Cheryl, on your next visit to London, what are your tea plans? Um, I would definitely go back to the Dorchester. It was, you know, I thought about trying different places, but the experience there was so great. It's just you, you go with what you know, and since it was a enjoyable experience, I would definitely go there again. Sounds good. Cheryl from Portland, thanks for the call. 
Thank you. <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about afternoon tea, the ritual of a fancy break in the afternoon with Britt Lonsdale, who's a blue badge guide in London. And Diana in Santa Fe emails us, and she writes, When in London, I had high tea at Brown's Hotel, at the Ritz, and at the Stafford Hotel. They're all great and fairly pricey. What are some of the less traditional places that serve fine afternoon teas? Britt, uh, do you know about the high tea at Brown's Hotel, at the Ritz, at the Stafford? Yes, I do, actually, and I've been to all of them. Um, in fact, if you look at my figure, you can tell that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm a, something of a great enjoyer of afternoon tea. But, um, you know, they vary tremendously in terms of the sort of ambiance or atmosphere you want because some places will have music. Sometimes they'll have a piano player. Sometimes they'll have a little chamber orchestra. So you can go very grand and glam. Or you can go very low-key, and an awful lot of little places will do afternoon tea. Um, so it really rather depends what sort of experience you want. You can go into many cafes in London, very simple little cafes, and they will give you a scone with jam and cream. Cheaper places, perhaps, and perfectly nice. Just behind Kensington Palace, you have the Orangery, and they will do an afternoon tea where you can just have um, jam, scone, and cream, and a cup of tea, and it'll be much less expensive than, you know, the big £40 yeah. layout for something a little more glamorous. Those are the sort of places. Or else you could go, uh, you know, into any little hotel and, and not have the, the full Monty, as we say, and uh, just have a scone and cream. You know, there's plenty of places where you could find this. So I suppose you can talk to the people in your hotel, you can look at your guidebook, or if you hire a private guide, the guides will all have experiences like you for the place to go for a tea, depending on your budget and, and how glamorous you want to go. Basically, the teas are in the afternoon. What, what is the typical time for tea? Well, usually what we would think would be about three o'clock. Having said that, such is the popularity of afternoon tea, you will find a lot of places, well, I hesitate to say cashing in on it because obviously they're meeting a demand, but you will find places that will start doing it very early. For example, right. the Ritz Hotel, they serve it from 11.30 in the morning, then at 1.30, then at 3.30, then at 5.30, and then at 7.30. They have various hmm. sittings. So that's, uh, you know, really quite a lot of afternoon tea. But um, the Langham Hotel that recently won an award for their afternoon tea, they serve it between two and six. It's almost always best to have a reservation, however, because they do get popular. It's the sort of place where you would take somebody to celebrate something, you right, know, or if yeah. you've got visitors in town. Yep. I had some Indian friends in town and took them to Fortnum and Mason's a little while ago, and they absolutely loved it although they were wearing jeans, which they thought, of course, was terribly fashionable. And we had to be tucked away in the corner because there is quite a strict dress code. And jeans, whilst to them would have seemed the height of fashion, uh, to the people in Fortnum and Masons was, you know, not the correct dress. So you may get in with casual dress, but you're likely to be tucked away in a corner. Quite probably. Yeah. Last time you were enjoying a tea with one of your friends in London, what was a, a faux pas you, you recognized from Americans that were there in the room? Or what, what is something that you would warn us about? Um, what I would say would be go with the flow and go with the experience. Don't go to afternoon tea and say, oh, no, I don't drink tea. <laughs> because why are you there if you haven't uh, decided that you're going to have a cup of tea? Try it with milk. You know, and just see the way you do it. What, one of the things that is so incredibly endearing, I find, about um, a lot of the American people I go around with is how sweetly they ask, how is the right way to do it? Um, should I be doing it like this? Should I be doing it like that? And I find that completely charming, and it makes me take them to my hearts because there really isn't a completely right way, or you will get some very stuffy English people or say, oh, no, milk in first, or, you know, no, 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 you must do your scone this way. Way. But to be honest, I don't think it really matters as long as you love the experience and, you know, just lap up the atmosphere. Probably make a point to take your time. You don't want to rush a tea. Definitely not. And anyway, you can't because if you start, you know, eating it all madly, you'll, you'll be so full, you, you just won't be able to manage the rest of it. So take it very, very gently. A question about the tea itself. What's the thought between loose tea and tea that comes in a bag? Well, I don't think in most of the really good afternoon tea places you will find tea in tea bags. You'll find loose tea. Um, that's really perceived as being the classiest way to serve it. Right. And you will get a little strainer, you know, so you'll strain it into your cup. That mm -hmm. sometimes comes as a bit of a surprise to people because they're not used to doing that. 
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Britt Lonsdale, who's a Blue Badge Guide in London. Britt, let's close it off by just taking us to your favorite place for afternoon tea in London and paint a little picture. Well, one of my favorite places, and it's certainly not the most glamorous place, is Fortnum & Mason's. It's a big store on Piccadilly, and when you go in at street level, there's lots of lovely teas for sale. Um, It's just really beautiful inside, and I love going upstairs to the Georgian restaurant on the fourth floor, which they lay out for afternoon tea. There are lovely, comfortable sofas, so comfortable that I went there with my children once a while back, and one of my boys fell asleep. That's how comfortable it was. And there's a man playing the piano, playing all sorts of popular tunes. He'll play requests. It's all very refined and very sort of um, peaceful. You're up above the roar of the traffic, and uh, you're served so nicely. Proper napkins, not paper napkins or anything like that. Lovely little strainer for the loose-leaf tea that's uh, brought to you in a lovely teapot, of course. Everything is so nicely done. The devil is always in the detail, and for me, the detail at Fortnum & Mason's is perfect, and especially, of course, the fact that the sandwiches, the scones, the strawberry jam, the clotted cream, and the little pastries are just so delicious. That's my favorite. Britt Lonsdale, hearing you talk just makes me want to raise my pinky and have a delightful (laughs) time at Fort Newman Masons or some great place like that. Thank you so much for joining us. Okay, next time we're in London. It's a pleasure. It's afternoon tea. Britt Lonsdale, thanks a lot. (laughs) Thank you. Nibbling their sandwiches, sipping on their tea. There sits a pair as perfect as you'd ever care to see. He's a piece of nature's artwork No more finely drawn than she As they're sipping on their sandwiches And nibbling their tea See how he smiles See how she beams as he offers her the tin of chocolate creams. One of the ways the English dealt with social change as the Industrial Age took hold was by learning from writers, like Jane Austen, who wove social commentary into their novels. Today, we're celebrating the 200th anniversary of the publication of Jane Austen's first novel. The title page read, Sense and Sensibility, a novel in three volumes by a lady. In our generation, you can experience her literary world through film and TV adaptations of her books, thanks in part to our next guest, Andrew Davis. Andrew takes us back to the early 1800s and into the world of Jane Austen, next on Travel with Rick Steves. Next week, the Worcestershire Literary Festival will be one of many venues celebrating the bicentennial of Jane Austen's first novel, Sense and Sensibility. Today, we're paying tribute to this remarkably influential novelist of Regency England with the help of Andrew Davis. He's known for his adaptation of Austen's Pride and Prejudice for the BBC in 1995. That's the miniseries in which Cullen Firth defined the role of Mr. Darcy for British and American TV viewers. Davis also wrote the screenplay for Bridget Jones' Diary, which recast Firth as a modern-day Mr. Darcy. Apologies in advance, in case the audio quality in our connection to Mr. Davis is not as clear as it might be. It's a digital compatibility issue with the older equipment connecting us to the BBC studios in Coventry. I find it ironic that our technology is not quite up to snuff during an interview about a 19th-century author who relied solely on pen and paper. I imagine Miss Austin would have also found this rather droll. Mr. Davis, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Now, you have really had an impact on the British uh, understanding of Jane Austen's work, and it has crossed the Atlantic with, with the ease of the Beatles, it seems like. What's your take on that? Did it surprise you how America got all excited about your work on Jane Austen? 
Um, I guess it did a little bit because I always think of you Americans, you have your own classics, Little Women, that kind of thing, Last of the Mohicans, and um, so I, re- I was delighted that, that, that Jane Austen went, went over so well. But I, I think really what I was trying to do very much with the adaptations was to kind of show people that, that Jane Austen characters weren't just sort of stuffy historical figures. They were live, breathing human beings just like you and me with um, very much the same kind of preoccupations. She, she writes about things that never go out of fashion, uh, love and sex and money and conflict between the generations and friendship and breaking friendship and all those things that are ever so easy to understand. They're, they're very real all the time and they, they lock into the deepest interests of readers or viewers and the thing about why why do somebody wrote 200 years ago the thing was she just did it so well her characters are so vivid and so real and so lovable so um, I've always been a terrific Jane Austen fan ever since I was made to read her (laughs) at school when I was uh, about 15 or 16 well you know she wasn't really an exceptional person as far as power or, or money or things like that. I, I understand she died when she was 41. She had written three novels by the time she was 23. She was essentially homeschooled. We don't know a lot about her, but who was Jane Austen? Oh, that's absolutely right. She spent a, really a very quiet life. She had quite an interesting family. They were gentry, but they weren't very well off. Two of her brothers went into the Navy, and one of them became an admiral, so they did very well. She had another brother who was a lawyer. So um, there was plenty of experience that she gained from them, even though she herself, you could say, had very little experience. She never got married. She was proposed to once or twice, but the guy that she really liked never did get around mm. to proposing. Uh, he ran off to Ireland. Um, and in fact, um, she she was never too much of a catch because she couldn't bring much money to the marriage. She was a bit like um, the uh, the sisters in Pride and Prejudice in that respect, but uh, rather more unlucky in terms of love and marriage. Is there a lot of autobiography in her work? Um I think there's there's bound to be quite a bit. She, of course, she changes it and and so on. But but she had a lot of this experience of living in quite a remote part of the country where there weren't very many people at all. There were only about six or ten families within visiting reach. And so if anybody interesting came to stay from London, that was very, very exciting because it might be a marriage prospect or it might be somebody who'd changed the family fortunes, but um, in Jane Austen's case, uh, she lived um, more or less in the same place all her life. She, she spent a bit of time in Bath, she spent a bit of time in Winchester, but mostly it was uh, with a very small circle. Well, people have you know different ruffles on their sleeves and different sorts of entertainment and different sorts of... Uh trappings, but uh, there's some timeless things about this, you know, especially a young woman. Uh, and I think women find Jane Austen's work particularly meaningful. Is it just she was really good at relating to the frustrations of a woman trying to break through class barriers or be taken seriously, even though she didn't have a lot of money? That was part of it. That was very much part of it. Um, Sense and sensibility just still feels awfully um modern to me. It's, a, it's about two sisters. One of them is a bit too cautious, and the other one is quite reckless emotionally. And, and so one of them holds back too much to show that she loves the guy that she really wants to marry. The other one falls head over heels in love with a guy who turns out to be totally unreliable. But they have to spend such a lot of time the lives of girls they weren't allowed to do anything much and they're always hanging around on the telephone waiting to hear if he'll call of course they didn't have telephones in those days they had to wait for a letter you know they can relate it's it's a timeless thing they say why why did he go away when <laughs> when will he come back we haven't heard from him and then when he did turn up he seemed strangely put out what's the matter what, did I do something wrong and uh, there's all those kind of concerns going on which 
which oh, I can uh, just, Muslim girls can relate to I can so just much. see Jane Austen sitting at Starbucks waiting for a text message exactly. from the, the guy who's exactly. not paying attention to her. <laughs> exactly. That's the kind of thing. That's the kind of thing. And something like Northanger Abbey is about a very young girl. She's 17. She's going to Bath for the first time. And she goes into the assembly rooms, which is just like, I, I don't know, going to a disco or going to a club. And it's absolutely crowded with strangers and exciting-looking young men. And she doesn't know who are the goodies and who are the baddies. And it just appeals so much. I used to be a school teacher and uh, I used to teach it to 13, 14 year old girls. And once they got over the slight difference in the language, uh, they absolutely lapped it up because it, it was like their lives. What is it, my dear? My dear Mr. Bennett, have you heard that the house at Netherfield Park has been let at last? No, Mrs. Bennett, I have not. Lydia says that Netherfield has been taken by two unmarried young men of large fortunes down from London. A Mr. Bingley and a Mr. Darcy. How lovely. Bingley and Darcy, lovely. How so, my dear? Mr. Bennett. You know, Bath is such a great rack upon which to hang all of these stories, isn't it? Uh, Bath was just the... The showcase city, it was the place people went to, to really make the scene. Very much, and it could be quite, quite a dangerous sort of place because in Jane Austen's own world and the, and the world of most of these girls coming from country families, if they were at home, they'd only meet people that their parents knew. But going to Bath, uh, there was a kind of freedom and license about the place so that... Um, strangers could introduce themselves or be introduced by the master of ceremonies but you never knew whether you were meeting an honorable suitor or a complete cad who was after your money or even worse after your virtue bath is even built for that bath has sidewalks that are bigger than the streets i believe designed so people could promenade Absolutely, and, and lots of little alleys that you could um, <laughs> sneak off down and have private conversations without your mother and your aunt noticing. So it's very, very exciting place. And, and something as, as big and grand as the assembly rooms must have been just so exciting for, um, oh, yeah. you know, a sheltered young girl who's, who's only lived in a little village in the country. In those days, people could dress up in a way that would enable them to present a false persona. Yes, yes, that's true. I mean, there, there was a lot of posing going on and pretending that you came from a grander family than you really <laughs> did and that kind of thing and, and making a little money go a long way. The whole class thing is so um, fascinating, I think, to Americans because we make a point to try not to, to be bogged down by that. Whether we are or not is another discussion. But in England, the class thing was, um, it dictated so much, especially in Jane Austen's time, didn't it? And And her brother was able to sort of navigate through the social class constraints because he got fast-tracked as a, a officer in the British Navy. Yes, that was one way. Uh, Jane Austen was always very proud of... Um, she was a gentleman's daughter, and all her main characters, she, <laughs> they, they will all say they're gentlemen's daughters, but often they don't have much money, and that was... Uh, Jane Austen's own case. Her father didn't have very much money at all, and her, her brother's had the good fortune, really, to go into the Navy, not get killed, but at the time of the Napoleonic Wars, when you could not only progress through the ranks, but through the prize money that you got for capturing French battleships and that kind of thing. Naval officers could be extremely rich. Yeah, you never hear anything about um, the Napoleonic Wars in Jane Austen's novels. But uh, this was the same time, wasn't it? it? It was at the same time. The whole career was coinciding with all of this French threat to Britain and Admiral Nelson and all of that sort of stuff. And Absolutely. So it's yes. a parallel world. It was probably a huge thing in Jane Austen's mind, but she's got it intimate down to a girl's struggles and frustrations in the countryside of England. Yes, that's true. In fact, the Navy and the and the war does come in, obviously no war scenes, but in, mm -hmm. um, in her last novel, Persuasion, the hero who eventually marries the heroine mm -hmm. is just such one of these people. He's, he's a naval officer who's making his way slowly in the Navy and becoming a success, and he's somebody who the heroine's snobby relations had looked down on because he doesn't come from a grand family, but but um, by the end of the war, he's richer than any of them hmm. because of all the prize money that he's earned. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Jane Austen. 2011 is the 200th anniversary 
of the publication of her first book, Sense and Sensibility. And Andrew Davis is the man who wrote the screenplay for the BBC series Pride and Prejudice, and he also wrote the screenplay for the movie Bridget Jones' Diary. Andrew, of course, 2011 is a big year for Janeites, I guess we call people who are really into Jane Austen. This is a travel show, after all. Let's talk a little bit about sightseeing in England, if you're a fan of Jane Austen or, or you want to be. Oh, well, you should certainly go to Bath if you're a fan of Jane Austen. You should go to see where Jane Austen lived towards the end of her life, Chawton Cottage in Hampshire, which has been preserved as a as a little Jane Austen museum. And, and you'll be able to see the tiny little sitting rooms that she worked in with the rest of the family around her and really very, very kind of cramped conditions. But it's, it's really worth seeing. And I guess the other thing is you should probably go and see some of the grand country houses of England, somewhere like Lyme Park, um, which was where they shot Pride and Prejudice, and gives a very good idea of, of what Pemberley would have been like, which was where Darcy lived, uh, where Colin Firth um, did his uh, hunting, shooting and fishing. Andrew, what if I said, sure, you can see her lock of hair here, and you can see her desk at the British Library, and you can go to the town where she lived or something, but you would really find the most rewarding travel experience by going to Bath and putting yourself in an 1810 mindset and just trying to let the whole town be a time tunnel experience for you so you can just sort of get into a, a Jane Austen perspective. Does that make any sense to you? I, I think it does because Bath is a perfectly preserved Regency spa town and for real Jane Austen fans, the novel, both Persuasion and Northanger Abbey, are set there or partly set there. And you can you can give yourself a Jane Austen walk because the actual streets are mentioned. Uh, my wife and I actually spent our honeymoon in Baths and uh, stayed in a hotel in Milsom Street, which is where... Catherine Morland had her lodgings in Northanger Abbey, and you can you can go to the assembly rooms, and you can go to the baths, and you can. You well, this, can... the assembly rooms themselves are incredible. You've got your string quartet, you've got your your bath buns, you've got Bonash looking down yes. on you, you've got this incredible ambience, and you can drink that horrible water that they've been drinking for two thousand years there. Yes, it's not very nice, is it? But it's said to do you good. They say so. Yeah. <laughs> I think one of the most vivid attractions in Bath might be, well, two things. Number one, Royal Crescent, which is a house from the neoclassical age, perfectly preserved. Have you been in that, that Georgian house? Yes. Yes, I have. And I think you can actually stay in the Royal Crescent, can't you? There's a um, hotel there on the yeah. Royal Crescent, which is quite pricey, but you can go there for tea, which is uh, accessible to anybody out in the ah, garden well, in the back. That would be the thing to do, I guess. But there's one house, as there are in York and in Edinburgh and many places in England, that really is just a perfect Georgian mansion with all sorts of volunteers in each room to describe all the the social silliness and, and uh, challenges and restraints that people lived with 200 years ago in England. Also in Bath, there is the best costume museum I've found anywhere in Europe, and it takes you several centuries of the evolution of fashion one decade at a time. And of course, all the, the fashions of Jane Austen's time would be right there in that beautiful costume museum, which is associated with all of these Jane Austen-era sites. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Andrew Davis from Coventry in England about Jane Austen. Andrew, what are your concerns and challenges in being true to Jane Austen? Would she be happy with seeing what you do on TV or in a, in a movie theater? I... I hope she would. In in general, I, I don't change very much because her her plots are pretty much perfect, and her her dialogue is very good. It's just a question of of crystallising it and and trimming it down. What I do do though, that I'm not sure whether she'd approve of, is that uh, I wrote some of the scenes that she uh, decided not to write because she would never write scenes with men on their own or men with other men because she said I've never had those experiences so how would I know? But with something like Pride and Prejudice, I, I wanted the viewers to get to know Darcy and ah. sympathise with him a bit so I wrote quite a lot of scenes with Darcy and his friend Bingley galloping about on horses and and also try to make Darcy seem a lot more human with scenes like uh, 
Darcy getting dressed, Darcy having a bath, uh, Darcy diving in the lake, uh, which gave us the famous wet shirt scene. Whoa, so you had the uh, delight as a writer to be sort of in a dance with Jane Austen. That's a very good way of putting it, yeah. And yeah. She, she did the woman's perspective, and, and for the context for the 21st century viewer, you got to give the man's perspective. Yeah, that, that was what I tried to do, yes. And today as people both in Britain and the United States enjoy your work and enjoy Jane Austen's work through your work, what meaning do you hope for people to gain from this time tunnel experience back to England 200 years ago? Well, I think one of the things that comes most strongly through Jane Austen's work is this feeling that um, you need to be true to yourself and things should come out right. If they don't come out right, well, you can't. You can't rebuke yourself. At least you've done the right thing. I mean, she's she's very much in favour of uh, virtues like uh, sincerity and honesty and being true to your own feelings and and being kind and being generous. And don't want to make her seem too much of a goody-goody because she's very sharp and witty as well. I, th- I think, you know, you can actually get quite a good moral education out of reading the books of Jane Austen. Andrew Davis, next time I go to Bath, England, I think, thanks to your inspiration, I'll factor in a little more Jane Austen sense and sensibility. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Tell me truly, are your feelings still what they were when I spoke to you at Hunsford? I would feel more sure of my answer if I had some assurance on your part that you were truly sympathetic. Then let me say that I love you and wish to marry you. Oh, then believe me, sir, when I tell you that my sentiments are very much changed in your favor since that night I cast you off. Oh, Miss Elizabeth, can you say this after my unpardonably conceited and prideful behavior? How can I find fault with you when it was I who opposed your pride with blind prejudice? The time has come to put the past behind us. Now let us look to the future and think only of the past as its remembrance gives us pleasure. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks for technical help today to our colleagues at KUOW Seattle, the BBC in London, and BBC Coventry. We've arranged many of the interviews from past editions of the show by the countries we discuss. They're available as podcasts and apps that you can download to your portable player or smartphone. Look for the Rick Steves Audio Europe links on the front page of our website at ricksteves.com. And join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks for London, England, Great Britain, Scotland, and Ireland. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for this region and beyond, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.